Hey, it's Neville here. And today our special guest is Dr. Natasha Kathuria. Welcome to the podcast. So I'm going to give a little quick intro over here. Natasha Kathuria is an ER doctor and global health specialist. She trained at Emory University and Mount Sinai Medical Center. Very impressive. Indian mom's dream. <laughs> and got her MPH in epidemiology at Columbia University. She used to teach at Cornell's Medical Center and has worked in 11 different countries. Natasha, welcome to the show. What's up, Neville? <laughs> so... On this show, one of the things we want to learn is kind of like how people communicate. And so you communicate with patients all the time that aren't receptive because you're an ER doc, you deal with people in trauma, they're in various states of disrepair and confusion. How do you convince people to do stuff they don't want to? Like if you say, I want you to lose weight, but they don't want to do it, or I want you to change this behavior, but they don't want to do it. What do you do in that situation? Right. Yeah. That's uh, pretty much sums up my job every day is trying to get people to do things they usually don't want to do. Um, and it's it's really interesting because I think a common misconception is that inducing fear in someone will elicit change in them. And that's something that I've learned over the years that doesn't work in patients, you know, mm -hmm. getting them to be afraid of something like eat better. You're going to have a heart attack in 50 years doesn't make people want to eat better. Um, you know, even with smoking, for example, we've had history of data on smoking cessation, how to get people to quit smoking and telling them you might get lung cancer or you might get heart disease doesn't at all make them want to change their behavior. In fact, if you ask a smoker what their risk of lung disease is, of lung cancer versus a non-smoker, the smoker will think it's higher, but they'll keep smoking. Um, so inducing fear doesn't help us. So I think the biggest thing that helps me with my patients in general in the ER is meeting them on their level um, and getting them excited about the benefit of the change, not fearing the consequence of staying on this course of action and meeting them where they are saying like, hey, if you eat better, like you're going to be better at basketball in a year if they're a basketball player or you can if you quit smoking, you know, you're going to be able to you know, play with your kid for four hours longer and give them something tangible that they can really work with that they're excited about um, and really meeting them where they are, not telling them what they should do. They, nobody wants to be told what to do. So you're kind of promoting the end result more than anything. Yeah, exactly. The end result and making it something that they care about and they're invested in personally. So when, you, when you're trying to get someone to stop smoking, it seems like a pretty hard thing to do. I've never had to do it, but it seems like the whole world's addicted, so it's kind of hard. You just tell them, does that actually work? You're just like, you can play with your kids for longer. Does that work? Uh, not quite like that. So for smoking, another, for something like smoking, for example, we don't like to induce fear, um, but something that's really important to know about the human mind and our psyche is that humans just are very loss averse. We don't like to lose things. So instead of presenting it like something they should fear, like dying, you can present it like something that they may lose in the long run. Like if somebody is 60 years old and they're smoking and they have grandchildren, you know, giving them the idea that, hey, if you quit smoking, you may be able to play with your grandchildren longer. And if you don't quit smoking, you might have difficulty even just walking across the room in a few years. And that, you know, presenting it as something that they're not going to be so afraid of that they'll reject, but something that's tangible that they can say, you know what, I really enjoy going on walks with my wife and playing with my grandchildren right now. I really don't want to lose that ability in five, 10 years. So I, 
I feel like fear is a pretty powerful motivator for a lot of people. What if you were to show a smoker like video of someone who's very old and decrepit because of smoking and they're on like one of those like machines where they're like, hey, whatever. I mean, would that not induce enough fear for someone to do that in, in your experience? Uh, yeah, it doesn't. Um, in fact, it's like one of the most basic case studies that we learn in public health school at the very beginning is <laughs> how it doesn't work. And it's funny because if you go to third world countries and you look at cigarette packs, they often have horrific graphic photographs you know, of like stuff. teeth rotting and lungs that are rotting and, you know, really graphic things. And they also have higher rates of smoking typically than we do. And those things just don't work because the human, the human brain will reject it. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't change behavior based on those fears. Um, so it, yeah, it just, it doesn't work. We hope it works. And intuitively you'd think no one wants to get to that end result. So no one would want to go down that path, but to change the behavior, it doesn't work. I think it does work, uh, to prevent people from doing things. So children, for example, teaching them at a young age, the consequences of action can prevent them from going down a path. But once someone's already addicted and down a path and trying to change that behavior, it's a completely different mechanism in the brain. Interesting. So like in the, in the marketing world, we always try to convey features and benefits of a product. So if you're talking about an iPad or something like that, you explain what you can do with it. You don't say you're an idiot if you don't buy an iPad uh, or you're going to lose this. That's kind of scammy stuff that used to work, but doesn't really work as consumers are smarter. So that's kind of interesting. So if so, you're we trying to get someone to stop smoking, do you kind of you just sell them on the benefits of it more than anything? And that tends to work more than the fear. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so many levels to it. I think it's exactly what you're talking about with tech and with, you know, the newest iPad or the newest Apple Watch. You know, sometimes it's a really small incremental change, but presenting it as something that that person is going to really want and benefit from and gain from is super powerful. Okay, so one of the one of the reasons that we we brought in Natasha today is that uh, you're on the news all the time, especially since the pandemic. You've been on the news like a trillion times. Uh, you've been on ABC News, CBS News, BBC News, Fox News, Global Post, Fox Media Business Insider, and Time Magazine. So I'm just curious about those. Um, can you explain like how those interviews usually go down? Do they like do they reach out to you? Like what's the whole process? Just, I'm just curious. I have no idea. So every interview is a little bit different. Uh, sometimes it's me pitching a story. So if something you know is happening in my ER or in my city that's really critical uh, or some insight that I have and I pitch the story, they'll want to cover it. And other times they'll come to me and say, you know, when the vaccine was coming out, hey, they're about to give emergency use authorization. Like, give me your insight on this. I'll do the research and then, you know, then we'll go on air. And, you know, I'll, I'll give them talking points. Sometimes they'll give me things that they want me to cover. But you're like talking to a reporter or something? Like who are you, or a producer? Who are you talking to whenever you're communicating all this stuff? To initiate the interview or during the interview? So they reach out, it's like a producer that reaches out or something like that? Yeah, oh yes, so, with the producers. So you, you pitch the stories to the producers or they will reach out to me and ask me to do them. And then they will decide what network or what level of their network they want it on, what show it's for. Um, and kind of go from there. And if it's obviously a print article, that's very different, you know, for like time and stuff. It's the writer that's mm. interviewing me over the phone. 
And do they like kind of do they kind of like nudge you on what to say? Because I've been approached before and they definitely they keep nudging. They're like, so you have an interesting opinion on this. Would you be willing to say it? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And they're like, well, so this other person really does. They're trying to set you up to to be like, I think this is bad. That that seems to be sometimes what happens. I don't think every time, but sometimes, especially on more like national news. Has have you ever seen anyone try to nudge you to say something like that or kind of convince you to take that angle? You know, it's been interesting because the coverage has changed drastically on COVID from February to now. Um, and obviously with the election that just happened, it became very political. And during that time, there was definitely some, you know, some moments of feeling subtly nudged in one direction or another. But I was actually very surprised that if you're proactive with it ahead of time and you tell them what you're not comfortable talking about, uh, they'll, they're pretty cognizant of that. And I think that's another point that maintaining uh, not to be political uh, socially, like on social media, uh, that's been very difficult for me to make sure that I don't appear in one direction or another because I'm interviewing on conservative and liberal networks. And once they start to pin me down a certain label, you know, they're naturally going to want to view my opinions as political. That's what human beings do right now. So th mm. that's been a tricky thing. What about um, how long are you actually on air versus how long do you appear on the news clip? Because some of your clips I've seen, they're like 10 seconds and then others are really long. Are you talking for like 30 minutes or an hour and they just narrow it down to like a 10 second clip or what usually happens there? So the shorter ones are usually pre-recorded. So they'll pre-record it ahead of time um, and they'll ask me questions. We'll have a long conversation kind of like us right now. And then they'll kind of grab what they want from it. And you'd think those would be the easier interviews, but I actually don't like those because they can clip what they want at the end of the day. Um, live <laughs> interviews, what you see is what you get. You're waiting, you're hearing everyone else before you, and then you're on screen. Everything you see on air, it, there's nothing cut, nothing edited. You mess up, it's on air. <laughs> <laughs> so, so whenever, okay, so you're in the ER all day giving advice to people. I'm sure people with COVID, all sorts of stuff right now. Um, in private, do you you probably give advice like a normal person? Like you talk to them being like, this is what you should do. This is what you should do. But when you go on the news, do you give, does it sound different? Do you have to like amp it up? Because it just, it just see like people on the news are just like, stay indoors. But like they probably wouldn't say that in real life. Do you have to change your attitude when you're discussing it to one person versus thousands? Definitely. I think when, you know, even just comparing a friend to a patient to the news giving public health advice for population behavior change versus an individual advice for individual behavior change is like night and day. Um, getting the public and population to receive messages has to be given in a much more calm way, again, that doesn't induce fear, but is much more fact-based and less personal and compassionate, less emotion involved. On an individual level, you can really meet someone where they are and really be like, hey, you know, this is the right thing to do for X, Y, and Z reason that applies to that individual. Um, but yeah, it's it's also easier to talk to a friend and know where they stand and not fear, you know, backlash versus on air when you've got people on every side of the spectrum that, you know, you're inevitably going to get some backlash for something you say. 
Okay, cool. Here's an interesting thing I wanted to ask you about because so it, like in the marketing content world, there's a thing called social proof. So if I if someone doesn't know who I am, I have to kind of give them some reason why they should listen to me. So if I'm redoing their website, I have to say like, oh, I've worked with Hotjar and Gartner.com and all sorts of things to prove that I know what I'm talking about. Um, in the doctor world, I think there's this proof um, for any healthcare company I've worked with that when doctors are shown, they need to have a freaking white coat and stethoscope. Do you do you notice that? Oh yeah, I don't think I've done an interview without my white coat on yet. Can we can we <laughs> can we put white coats on right now? Oh yeah, we can put white coats on. All right, let's do it. Okay, now we are doctors. Check that out. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> do we look way more doctory now? So much more doctory. Okay, so explain to me. Whenever whenever you walk into a room and you have a doctor coat on or white coat and stethoscope, which like, I don't even think doctors use stethoscopes that much anymore. It, it actually conveys that you are a doctor, whereas before some people may think you're not a doctor. Yeah. What happens with that? Uh, that's definitely true. I think, um, you know, younger female docs, I think like myself, have to worry more about appearance because, you know, we're often mistaken for other healthcare workers and not seen as physicians when we walk in the room, and understandably so. Uh, you know, I think it's also important not to get super sensitive and take that personally when people are just basing their assumptions on their history. Um, so most females will do it sometimes, but in the ER where I work, wearing a white coat is just a hassle. You don't, you get blood on it, like it gets dirty. You don't, this is, a white is the worst color they could have picked for us to wear to work. So scrubs, equivalent. Um, we definitely use our stethoscopes in the ER. Um, so we always have them on us. Uh, but, yeah. but like even with my bias, you look so much more doctory right now th than than you did like a moment ago without all that stuff. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I just think like a doctor wears a white coat for some reason. So in every single movie, they're wearing a white coat. Maybe sometimes that ridiculous like light that they have on their head or something right. like a dentist would wear. <laughs> yeah. So th that's that's just really interesting that this is such social proof that you wear a doctor. Also, I'm an Indian male wearing a white coat. So I definitely probably look like a doctor, even though this thing is like huge on me. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> that's awesome. So uh, one last question we have for Natasha. Um, in the ER, what is the craziest thing you've ever seen someone stick up their butt? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's such a funny question, and I get it all the time. Um, it's also not that uncommon. We see it. All, I've seen it so many things. Is it usually an accident, quote unquote? Or? Uh, it's not usually an accident, but they usually present it as such. <laughs> um, very commonly, like I, I slipped and fell, you know, and there's it's always the joke like, why are you walking around naked all the time? Like that's not obviously how these things happen. Usually it's for pleasure or other things. <laughs> um, so I actually happened to me recently, I had a, just a few days ago in the middle of COVID pandemic, we have no beds to admit to in the city um, during the shift I was working and uh, a patient came in and lost, lost a, a full spatula um, <laughs> in his uh, rectum and like couldn't find it. And for context, he brought in the paired spatula that was not flat, the spoon version to show me the material of it, that it was silicone. And, you know, so and that is important when we do radiographs and we image for it based on what material it is. But I was like, dang, full spatula. Full spatula. I mean, in a way, that's kind of impressive. <laughs> no. It was it was pretty funny. And, uh, you know, he was he was funny about it and very, um, you know, 
good sense of humor about it, but I was like, oh my God, that's probably the longest object that I've personally had for a patient. Um, you know, but we've had thermoses, um, light bulbs, like Ooh. you name it, like anything that you could think of has been stuck up there in a patient before. Oh my God. I hope it was like an LED light bulb and not like one of the glass ones or something. Wow. Oh yeah. <laughs> no. Cool. Uh, any other ways that y'all use to convince or use language um, to convince people of? Because uh, so with, with language, like we always try to eliminate buzzwords big time from any of our copy or any of our websites or anything like that. So if someone has a SaaS company and they're like, good evening to who it may be concerned, we are interested in conveying this thought. And you're just like, what the hell are they talking about? So we always just say like, uh, we redo your website for you. Just something like you, you, you almost, and I hate the word like dumb down, but you make it simpler to understand. So someone's brain doesn't have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to understand the words. Um, do you frequently talk to people like that? You kind of like dumb it down or just explain it in terms they can understand. Cause I've heard you and your husband talk medical stuff. And I'm like, I literally, I, I don't even know what you're saying sometimes. Is, is that a common thing that happens that you have to kind of just like explain in very, very, very simple language? Is that training that you get as a doctor? Yes, uh, that is something we have to do all the time. And it's another thing that hinders us if we don't, or if we're not conscious of that when we speak to patients, that will prevent them from receiving the information that we give them, especially for behavior change. If I'm gonna tell someone, hey, your ejection fraction of your heart might reduce by 20% if you don't quit smoking, I mean, what, what does that mean? What does that translate to in one year out the other, no matter how fearful that can be? But changing that to be more digestible and tangible is, hey, you're going to have difficulty walking across the room. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to have a prolonged conversation on the phone uh, if you don't make those changes. And it's the same thing. You know, one is describing heart failure in medical terms and one is describing what's actually important to the patient, which is how it affects their quality of life. Uh, one, one common reason I hear that people do that, um, especially when they're in committees, is they use complex language because they think it makes them seem smarter. And I argue that it doesn't, um, but they think like, oh, if we use big words, like it makes us seem smarter. So if you say, oh, the ejection factor of your blah, 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 lungs, whatever, and you use all sorts of doctory terms, do they think that, oh, she's so smart, I should listen to her? Or are they just like, I don't know, does it blow you off because of it? Like what, what happens there? Uh, I do think that it's important to build the rapport with the patient. And I think sometimes it does take a little bit of medical jargon if they don't seem to trust your opinion on something. You know, if you receive some mm. sense of doubt from the patient, like, oh, that sounds ridiculous. Then breaking it down into the medical terms and explaining that thoroughly will give them context of, oh, okay, I, mm. I get it now. That's very interesting. Like that is... So there is some logic behind this. It's not just you telling me that smoking's bad, um, but really bringing it back full circle at the end of it to still meet them on their level and really listen to them and hear what's important to them and how it's going to change that part of their life. Okay. So if at first you say you got to stop smoking, they're like, I know that's cool. But if they're like, I don't believe you, then you'd be like, well, your ejection factor, blah, 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 is three. And you're about to die. Look at this chart. You're going to die when it hits four. Then they believe you more. Yeah, you give them some objective measurements, things that they can actually watch and monitor. I think that that's important. Sometimes it goes over their head, but it, it gives them some context of this physician knows what they're talking about, and they're not just giving me their opinion. Because at, the at the end of the day, 
they don't want my opinion just on what I think is right and wrong. They want what's going to benefit them objectively. Awesome. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for being here. Uh, where can people see you on the news? Where are you appearing all the time? Oh, man, um, kind of all over. So, uh, yeah, BBC, uh, locally in Austin, I'm on KVU all the time, ABC's network, and Fox. I'm on Fox a lot um, and a bunch of podcasts. So Awesome. This is awesome. Thank you, Natasha. Thanks.